been doing a bit of a character study in the book of Luke in preparation for Christmas. So if you have a Bible, I'd love if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And I want to begin this morning just by reading the verse, uh, first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. It says the following. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Well, as I mentioned, for the last two weeks, we've been doing something of a character study in the book of Luke. In the first week, uh, we looked at John the Baptist and the part that he plays in the Christmas narrative. Last week, we looked at Mary, the, uh, the mother of our Lord, and the part that she plays in the Christmas narrative. And then in a moment, we're going to take a bit of a look at the men that we just mentioned, and that is the shepherds. But what's interesting with each of these accounts, with John the Baptist, with Mary, and now with the shepherds, is that every one of those accounts is accompanied by an angelic announcement. It's as if the, the events themselves would be rather insignificant if you didn't get the running commentary from the angels. You know, it, it'd be kind of like watching a horror movie with the volume down. There'd be nothing to really shock you. It's really not until you turn the volume up and get the kind of commentary from the orchestra that gives you the right emotions as you watch the events transpire. I mean, without the angels telling us what's going on, I mean, the headline here would just read, Jewish boy born in stable. But it, it's really the angels who give us the insight into what's going on. Um, but with Christmas being such an opportune time to share the gospel, I mean, literally the gospel is being pronounced in shopping centres everywhere as carols uh, pour their way in as we shop. As much as it's an opportune time for us to share the gospel... When you look at some of the details of Christmas, it's actually very hard to share the gospel, especially when we've got these things like angelic announcements. I mean, I was um, doing some religious instruction in one of the uh, schools in Highfields this week, and whenever I go to speak at one of these high schools, I assume a couple of things about the students. Number one, I assume that they don't know Jesus. I just assume that they have a secular worldview, and that I'm also assuming that they're quite sceptical of Him. That's how I generally gear those talks. 
And as I was preparing my content this week, as I got to share the gospel with them and unfold the Christmas narrative, I must admit there were moments in my preparation where I was just, just a little bit, at least for a moment, discouraged about how, how am I going to engage with all the different parts of this story? I mean, Christianity, although it is absolutely the truth, it, if we're honest, it can be a little bit tricky to articulate the details to an unbelieving world sometimes. I mean, how does the story begin? We begin with a world created out of nothing, which flies in the face of every scientific thought. That's Genesis 1. And then you get to Genesis 3, we've got this weird account with a talking snake. And that's how the fall of man came about. And then you get to Christmas, and last week we spoke about the virgin birth. That's a difficult thing to try and articulate to an unbelieving world. And now we've also got star signs that lead wise men. And then we've got angelic announcements. So I must admit, as I was preparing my content, I'm like, which details am I going to pick? How much apologetic engagement am I going to have to wrestle with in order to get the gospel message out to these kids? But what I actually really love about the Bible, especially in the writings of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, is that despite the fact that there is recording of miraculous and supernatural events, Luke goes to great lengths to ground everything he's saying in world history. Just look at how this text begins here in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. What's Luke doing there? Like, why would you put those details in? How do they contribute to the narrative? Well, what Luke said in the opening of his gospel is that he was writing an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, I'm sure if there's any um, students in the room who've studied any history, you'll know that Rome was governed by several Caesars. And Luke mentions one of these Caesars. He mentions Caesar Augustus. He's also gone by the name of Octavian. And his reign was from 31 BC to AD 14. So what Luke is doing is giving us a 45-year window trying to locate the nativity scene in history. So he starts a bit wider. He says, all right, here's a 45-year window. And then he brings it in another, another level. And he mentions this governor by the name of Quirinius. Now we know from extra biblical sources, sources outside the Bible, that this man was in fact the governor of Syria. And before he had that official title of governor, he also had administrative roles under former governors. So what Luke is doing is he's, he's narrowing in the time frame for us in history just that little bit closer. Now, it says there that this was the first registration. There was A lot of historians will talk about a very famous registration that went on in this particular point in history. It was actually, um, it caused quite an uproar. You can read about that uproar in Acts chapter 5. People were not happy that the Romans were doing another census. They were, there was a bit of an uproar about it. And we know that Quirinius was governor for this big uh, controversial census. But in history, there's actually very little evidence to say that there was a census before that. So some people have looked at this and gone, first registration, I'm not sure that there was one. We know about the big controversial one, but what's this first census you're talking about well there's a couple of ways we can navigate it well we can look at verse chapter uh, we can look at verse 2 and it says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor it could uh, the word when there could actually translate before he was governor so that's that's one option to make it fit but the other option is to look at how Romans typically did census Uh, they were generally done about every 14 years right so if we know one was done in AD 6 
count back 14 years, that brings you to 8 BC. Now, there's no emails in those days, there's no online census that everyone's getting on to do. What would have happened is it would have been issued, and by the time it left Rome, by the time it got to Palestine, could have taken a couple of years. So if it was decreed in, say, 8 BC, by the time it gets to Palestine, it's somewhere between 4 and 6 BC, exactly the time that historians say Jesus was born. Now, why am I saying all that this morning? Did we come to church for a history lesson? Is that what I'm here to do this morning? (laughs) Is that what Luke is trying to do? Give us a history lesson? No, but do you know that on the pages of Scripture, in God's inspired word that we are meant to nourish on, He gives us historical details. Do you ever think about that? (laughs) I find it so fascinating that God chose to put historical details into His divine revelation. You know what I love telling people whenever I'm sharing the gospel with them? I often go for this little phrase, my faith has names and dates. I love telling people that my Saviour was executed at the eastern end of the Mediterranean in the first century. I love landing those things because it reminds people that this isn't just a fable along with some of the other fables that happen at Christmas time. No, this is legitimate world history. It's nice to wake people up to that from time to time. Our faith is not some Jiminy Cricket, wish upon a star, naive faith. That's not what we're dealing with here. This is world history. Uh, If you look at uh, Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, I'm not sure if we'll get it up there. Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 2. This is what Luke does. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, sounds like a sports injury, and Lassanaeus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Sophia, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. What is Luke doing here? Why doesn't he just go straight to the details? The word of the Lord came to John. Well, he's grounding these events in familiar, secular world history. (laughs) He's telling you that this happened. Luke is not a simpleton. He was actually a very well-trained medical doctor in the first century. He's clearly a very capable historian. And he's telling you that this actually happened. So I want to just, just for a moment, let's be encouraged by that. Do you you ever get lost in the details of your faith? (laughs) Is Is it a bit difficult sometimes to defend the talking snake the virgin birth, the resurrection. There are some miraculous things to defend, but at the same time, Luke says, it's miraculous, but it happened. This happened in history. And he's naming Caesars. He will mention Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, on and on and on. He's happy to speak history with you because he doesn't see a dichotomy between the two. Christianity happened. But not only is it great history, the next thing that we see in this text is that it's history that God's in charge of. It's orchestrated in such a way that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So Joseph's ancestry meant that he had to be registered at a certain place within Palestine. Everyone had to return to their origin uh, of ancestry, so to speak. And so basically they had to head south about 100 kilometers. Just picture that for a moment. You've got a pregnant wife and you've got to travel 100 kilometres through desertous-type regions where there was probably bandits around. I'm sure grace would abound in that moment. Can you imagine what this guy went through? But what we have in the Old Testament, as much as it seems like this 
Roman official is kind of throwing his around, weight around, dictating where the Messiah is going to be born. Here's King Jesus, supposedly at the mercy of Augustus. Maybe what Augustus doesn't realize is that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You see, as much as it, look like, it looks like Augustus is throwing his weight around, God's just moving him around like a pawn on a chessboard saying, no, 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 I'm, I've sovereignly orchestrated this. My son will be born in Bethlehem. As crazy as this story is, as much as Joseph and Mary has to go through on this 100-kilometer journey, God's orchestrating the whole thing. I love how um, Philip Ryken described it. He said, God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so that the real saviour would stand alone as the king of kings. So it's reliable history. It's history that God's in control of. And it's history, in some sense, no one was expecting. I mean, there were, there were certainly expectations for a coming Messiah. There were a number of different theories in that 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New. There was a, so many different theories about what's this Messiah going to look like? Maybe there'll be two different Messiahs. There might be like a priestly type Messiah. There might be a kingly Messiah. There could be a couple of them. There were a lot of theories floating around about how the Messiah could come. But I tell you, no one was placing bets on the Messiah coming like this. This is so scandalous to any Jewish thought in the first century. No one would have been making this stuff up. It must have happened. We even read about it last week when uh, Gabriel spoke to Mary. He said that he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. See all these things said? See the greatness that is spoken over him. See the kingship that is spoken over this coming Messiah. And yet, where is he born? Well, Joseph and Mary weren't the only ones coming along to be registered for this census. Now, the census was there for tax purposes. The, the Roman government basically had to squeeze every individual in Palestine to make sure the funds were coming toward the kingdom. But Joseph and Mary aren't the only ones. So you can imagine there's people piling into Bethlehem from all different regions and things are filling up. There's a lot of people there, but there's not a lot of accommodation left. And so the text says that there was no room for them left in the inn and that Mary laid him in a manger. Now, we kind of, if you look at your average nativity scene, we kind of picture this moment in history as like Jesus being born in a really big, cushy barn house you know the kind that you could use for like a rustic wedding and get really nice pictures like we see plenty of big cushy hay and all that kind of thing we've really um not done justice to what this scene would have looked like in fact um it was probably a cave that he was born in there is good historical evidence to say it wasn't a stable at all It was probably a cave in fact in bethlehem to this day there is a church built over a cave site called the church of the nativity now, we can't be certain, we're not, we're not certain, but there is a cave site in Bethlehem that many have said was where Jesus was born. It may have been the case. A cave where animals would rest. And the word that translates manger best translates feeding trough. Not exactly the cushy barn house, is it? 
I think our nativity scenes would probably look a little bit different in households. We wouldn't probably want to buy too many of them. This is not a pretty picture. This is not Prince George or Prince Louis sitting in Kensington Palace back home in England. This is not what we're looking at here. This is quite the opposite of royalty. It says there was no place for them in the inn. And this really sets up a pattern of rejection that would follow Jesus for his entire life. I mean, this is John 1.11 in narrative form. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In fact, uh, one author put it this way. He said, The Messiah's life will contain an unusual bookend for a king since he was born in an animal room and will die with robbers. This is how God chose to enter history. It's not too spectacular, is it? And it begs the question, well, what do we do with this? Why did God decide to insert himself into history in this particular manner? I thought these comments from a guy named Alfred Edersheim really shed light on it. He says, If we think of Jesus as the Messiah from heaven, the surroundings of outward poverty, so far from detracting, seem most congruous to his divine character. Earthly splendor would here seem like tawdry tinsel, and the utmost simplicity like that clothing of the lilies, which far surpassed all the glory of Solomon's court. What's he saying there? He's saying that the way Jesus arrived tells us something about his character and his mission. His arrival tells us quite a bit about who he is. And the truth is, the reason he came in such an unspectacular, unglamorous fashion is because he came to save unspectacular people like you and me. That's why he comes like this. He came in an unspectacular fashion to save those who aren't that spectacular. That's you and me. And so the characters, as we're doing our character study here in the book of Luke, the next character that we encounter are these people called the shepherds. Now, how are we meant to understand what role the shepherds play here in Luke chapter 2? Well, the truth is, that's just it. They're not that significant at all. That's the point Luke is trying to make. We've seen some very significant characters so far. We saw that John the Baptist would be the forerunner for the Messiah. He would call the nation to repentance prior to the Messiah coming. And then last week we saw that Mary would be the the one who would bear the second person of the Trinity in her womb. She is significant in that sense. And now we've just got the shepherds. (laughs) It's remarkable how completely unremarkable they are. They're not that significant. And that's the point that Luke is trying to make. In fact, in the first century, if you were a shepherd, as a class, though there were no doubt exceptions to the rule, they were, they were viewed in positive light in some sense. You know, obviously, David was a shepherd. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, etc. But if you threw a blanket over shepherds in the first century, for the most part, they were a despised class. They had a really poor reputation. And it was for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, they were considered thieves. They were also considered to be liars. And then because of the nature of their role, they're out in the field all day, fighting off foreign animals, looking after their sheep. Who knows how dirty these guys got? Because of the nature of their profession, they couldn't participate in keeping up with the ceremonial law. These guys couldn't exactly go to the temple with too much ease. It'd be like being out in the farm all day and then trying to be a dental hygienist. Like It's not going to go too well for you. And so these people were despised as a class. Like... If you had like a food chain in the first century, at the bottom you had lepers. Shepherds wouldn't have been too far above the bottom. And so here we have the shepherds enter the scene of the nativity. Now, who do they represent? They represent you and me. 
If you're trying to find yourself in the birth narrative somewhere and identify, jump in with the shepherds. (laughs) That's about where we land in this text. They represent the rugged, ragamuffin humanity that we are. They represent you and me. (laughs) Uh, Many years ago, I'm not sure if there's a a picture up there, Um, my best mate Clay, that's uh, me at my wedding earlier this year, he was my best man, we've been mates since uh, the fifth grade, Uh, one of my best mates in the world. Several years ago, he had his first daughter. So he's got two daughters now. And when he, uh, his wife first gave birth to their first daughter, I was excited. I got to be Uncle Jados. I could not wait. I'm thinking, I'm going to get this kid their first football. And you're like, Jaden, it's a daughter. I'm like, I know. I bought a pink football. It's fine. <laughs> Uncle Jados had to get the teddy bear and pink football up to Bubsy. So I remember I, I took the drive from the Gold Coast up to East Brisbane. It's a fair old hike to get there. And um, I was so excited to see this newborn. <laughs> but retrospectively, I think I, um, oh, I know, <laughs> I interrupted a bit of a family moment. <laughs> this is the day after the child had been born and Uncle Jados, who's not really an uncle, decided to rock up to the hospital. I was excited. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, we all know it, don't we? There's kind of a, there's a bit of an order of service as to who gets to see bubs first. You know, like typically it's, Immediate family gets to come to the hospital. Maybe the mum's even holding the hand during the birth, all that kind of thing. And then maybe a few days later, you might get a bit more extended family. Maybe a close friend, but usually it's not at the hospital. It's probably back at the house somewhere. Um, There's a bit of an order of service, right? And um, if we're honest, I think we get a bit proud about where we land in that service. Like, have you ever had that phone call? It's like, oh, did you hear that so-and-so had their daughter? Yeah, I did hear. (laughs) I was at the hospital. Uh, Had two cuddles this week, you know. (laughs) We're very aware of this hierarchy when it comes to newborns, right? But yeah, on this case, I broke protocol. What can I say? Grace abounds. But in this case, who gets to come on scene first? This isn't just a family affair. Heaven looks down at this moment in world history and says, oh, this is too good. We've got to tell some people about this. Get the shepherds. Poor Mary, right? (laughs) She's probably 12 or 13 years old, giving birth to her first son, and these strange men are going to come and meet King Jesus. I mean, it's a little uncomfortable, right? But the news is just too good to be true. This is not just a family affair. This is an all play for humanity. So heaven says, let's get the shepherds. And so the next thing we see is that third angelic announcement that we've encountered as we've been going through Luke chapter 1 and 2. And it transitions like, Initially, it's just one angel making this announcement and then an entire host of angels decide they're going to rock up onto the scene and start singing this incredible song. They're going, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's a little bit of a a paradox here. This is a a host of angels. The word host literally translates army. Uh, So you've got an army proclaiming peace. A little bit of an irony there, but that one's for free. But these angels are declaring to the shepherds... um, that because of the arrival of this particular baby, the baby who has just been called Saviour, whom they will find wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, because of him, there is going to be peace on earth. That's what they're telling. Yet it begs the question, what is implied by peace here? There was a lot of different ideas about what peace meant in the first century. You see, Roman rulers were often referred to as saviours. It could be said of Augustus Caesar that he was a saviour of sorts. I mean, there was a lot of strife before he came to power, and once he came into power, there was a a time of peace under the reign of Augustus. 
So are we talking about some kind of political peace? Is, is Jesus, this, this, this baby in a manger, going to bring political peace? Is that what the angels are declaring here, the end of political chaos? Or is it the kind of peace that maybe some of you grew up with last century where we adopt the lifestyle of a 20th century hippie? Is that the peace that we're going for here? You know, there's a lot of people today forwarding peace in their own different ways. There's a lot of push towards a, a tolerance. There's this tolerance polemic going around. Let's just rid of all truth and dogmatic, dogmatic fundamentalism. If we can get rid of that, we'll have more peace. People will have more opportunity. Is that what they're shooting for here? Is that what the angels are trying to accomplish? I think they've got something different in mind, right? Leon Morris, probably the best Bible commentator ever, he said it this way. He said, peace, of course, means peace between God and people, the healing of the estrangement caused by human evil. And then with that, there was a brilliant excerpt from another commentator, Philip Ryken. He said this, the famous Stoic philosopher Epictetus, a contemporary of Luke, observed that while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than, ev- more than even for outward peace. Nor could the emperor offer peace with God, which is the most necessary peace of all. So we learned a couple of weeks ago with John the Baptist that this is not a political agenda that we're seeing here in the first two chapters of Luke. There is a heart-turning mission that needs to take place here. That's what this baby Jesus has come for. We all sing it every year, don't we? Peace on earth and mercy mild. Here's the kicker. God and sinners reconciled. Peace is synonymous with being reconciled to God here in Luke chapter 2. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, that's what these shepherds need more than anything. That's what you and I need more than anything. We need to be reconciled to God. And because of the coming of Christ and his subsequent death on the cross and his resurrection, peace is now available. There was no peace prior to the coming of Jesus. Only the verdict of eternal damnation. So when we believe in Jesus... There's no more guilty conscience that we have to carry around. There's, there's no more hostility between you and God. This is the good news of great joy that the angels were talking about. These, these shepherds, these ragamuffin, non-spectacular men from a despised class experience that joy. And they experience it to such a degree, they've got to start telling some people about it. The same way heaven looked down and said, we can't just leave this as a family affair. Get the shepherds. The shepherds see it and they go... We can't just leave it to us either. We're going to go tell some people. This is the news of great joy that they had to share. It says it there in those later verses. It says, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. As far as I can see, these shepherds are the first evangelists that rock up in the New Testament. How's that for significance in the Christmas story? You get to be the first evangelist. There is a beautiful message of peace at Christmas time, and it's a peace that we ought to want to proclaim. And it's not just because it's a historical reality, as much as I love to nerd out on those details, but because it speaks to the hostile realities that goes on in each of our hearts. I mean, I wonder how many people there are in Highfields this Christmas who have to set sail with Captain Morgan to get to sleep at night. 
trying to bury their guilt and shame. This is a reality for a lot of people. This gospel is good news because it happened, because it speaks to our hostile situations within our own heart. Why don't the band come and join me? I just want to read from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, we participate. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this Christmas, there's two ways that we all need to identify with these shepherds here in Luke 2. Firstly, we need to identify as one who brings nothing to the table, that we have been hostile towards God and we need to be restored to Him. We need peace between God and man. We are simple folk, ragamuffins, in need of a saviour. But then the second way you and I need to identify with these shepherds is that we are ambassadors of this message of peace. That in the same way they saw baby Jesus and had to go and tell people about it, we get to do the same thing this Christmas. I wonder this week how many people within your circle of influence at work or school, study, wherever you may be this week, how many people this Christmas are harboring the internal turmoil of guilt and shame where the gospel of peace could just come in and break it and say, hey, you and God are on good terms now. You don't have to set sail with Captain Morgan every night to get to sleep. The gospel of peace is good news of great joy. And if you struggle with evangelism, as we all do, welcome. There's these words here, and I first heard them from Tim Keller, but I think they come from an original source that was lost to me. They said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You're just another shepherd, another simple folk ragamuffin, who needed the gospel of peace and now you're sharing it with someone else.